Sydney Opera House's Popular House Stories podcast returns with four new episodes unearthing untold stories from behind the scenes of the world-famous sales. Explore the iconic building's transformation for the 21st century, delve into captivating tales about the artists and performances on our stages, and much, much more. Start listening now at sydneyoperahouse.com slash digital slash podcasts or on your favourite podcast platform. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. How do we support those who speak out? How can we support advocates who speak from traumatic lived experiences? When victims of violence move from silence to speech, how do we honour their stories? Rosie Batty and Grace Tame have built their lives around fighting for justice. Together for the first time, they share their experiences of being Australian of the Year, explore the power of personal testimony and advocacy's personal cost. These two heroic advocates have a necessary conversation about upholding and protecting vocal survivors. Hosted by Jamila Rizvi, recorded live at the Sydney Opera House for All About Women 2022. Everybody and good afternoon. Let's have a round of applause again for Grace Tame and Rosie Batty. Hello, my name is Jamila Rizvi and I'm the Chief Creative Officer at Future Women. It is my sincere pleasure to welcome you back to the Sydney Opera House. It is so lovely to have you as our guests. It is so lovely to be together in one place again. Now, I don't know exactly where this conversation with these two extraordinary women sitting beside me might go, but I do imagine it might touch on subjects including violence against women and children, as well as sharing personal stories of mental health. That content, of course, could be upsetting for some of you in the audience today, so I want to make sure that you're prepared and know that you can always step outside if you need to. Of course, after the show, if you need to, 1-800-RESPECT is available 24 hours a day, both online and by phone, to provide a support for anyone who has experienced sexual assault or family violence. You can also call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Without further ado, let's get into this conversation. I'm going to introduce briefly two women who don't need any introduction, but it's a good reminder of who they are and what they've achieved. Rosie Batty is a passionate campaigner on the issue of family violence. She won the Pride of Australia Award in 2014 and was instrumental in the establishment of the Royal Commission into Family Violence. In an event that shocked our country, Rosie's 11-year-old son, Luke, was killed by his father in a violent incident just one year before she was named Australian of the Year. Please make Rosie welcome. Grace Tame is an outspoken advocate for survivors of sexual assault, particularly those who were abused in institutional settings. She is the founder of the Grace Tame Foundation and only a month or so ago wrapped up her own tenure as Australian of the Year. From age 15, Grace was of course... <laughs> she misses it a lot. <laughs> From age 15, Grace was groomed and raped by her 58-year-old maths teacher who was found guilty and jailed for his crimes. Now, I've had the privilege of interviewing these two women before, but not together and certainly not like this, not on the main stage at Sydney Opera House with such a generous audience watching online as well. Today is going to be very special. Rosie and Grace have spent their lives around, built their lives around fighting for justice. But what were their personal experiences of being Australian of the Year? The experiences that were felt at a human level behind all those headlines? What have they learned about giving public, public testimony about what happened to them? And what is the personal cost of that advocacy? Let's find out. Rosie, let's start with you. Becoming Australian of the Year, of the year for achievements 
there are so many people who become Australian of the Year for Not so many, Jamila. You only ever one Australian of the Year at any one okay, period of time. You know, most That's what people... they kept telling me. That's how special we are. Oh, this is what are, she's like, Grace. everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Thank Rosie. you. <laughs> she, she said backstage, if I ask a question she doesn't like, she'll just go me, which is what's I never said that. Happened. I never said that. <laughs> so, of the very few people who become Australian of the Year, the majority of those become Australian of the Year because of their achievements in a field of endeavour that they choose, that they joyfully dedicated their lives to. They went into sport, they went into science, this was something they wanted. And I'm not saying that to reduce the power of the advocacy that the two of you have done, but both of your awards and your work were born of trauma. So how does it feel to win that award in that moment? Does it feel joyful? Um, it's conflicting. I think, I don't know that the word joyful springs to mind. I think bittersweet. I think um, overwhelmment. Why me? I think imposter syndrome. I think all these people I'm nominated again, you know, with, have done amazing work for decades. Who am I? I always felt very conflicted. Am I just getting this award because my son was murdered and it's such a horrific act that they feel so sorry for me that that's why I've got it? And people, you know, it's, 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 it was really... Um, so what am I going to do with this award? And I guess because I was so f afraid of failing and not being good enough, I perhaps overcompensated and poured myself into it. And I think that, um, you know, as, as I can think that I can identify with Grace is you, you have limited experience about all of a sudden being elevated to be a publicly recognised person. You go from total anonymity to, you know, from nobody knowing who you are to all of a sudden everybody knowing who you are. And from that having judgments about you, people inviting themselves to have opinions about you. And some of those opinions and that backlash is ugly. And it can come from places of jealousy, of resentment, of emotions you couldn't even predict. Mm. You th you're on some form of high when you get the award because so many people are delighted for you. You feel proud that you've... Your parents are proud of you, your friends and people that are, are really pleased for you. And that bubble doesn't last all that time. Mm. And then the hard yards, the exhaustion, the unrelenting public... But, but you know, every single person, it would seem, wants to reach out to you you, you never anticipated the degree of people who are experiencing violence, extreme violence, that identify with you and want to share their story and they want you to help them. And you can't. Mm. You're one person doing the best you can. And you don't know everything. And you're on a huge learning curve. And who do you trust? Who can you rely on? Who can you count on to have your back? Mm when you are being vulnerable, when you are being human, when you're not being your best self. Um, it's, it's, so I, I think that, you know, if, I can't remember the question actually, Jamila. I, <laughs> I think I need to not take up the whole hour and, and allow Grace the time to be able to speak to this. But it, I think, I don't know joyful is the right word, conflicted emotions. Yeah. Who am I? And realizing the sense of responsibility you have with the award and the opportunities that you can kind of um, actualize through that platform mm. and the very many people that will, you hope, you can do something to change those lives. Grace, what was it like for you arriving in Canberra to receive an award like that? Oh, look, um, I think... Uh, uh, you know, I echo a lot of what, what Rosie has just said, um, you know, and, and the answer is, 
is a nuanced one. And I think it's important to understand that a lot of things can be true at the same time. Um, I am at once eternally grateful for all of the opportunities that being named an Australian of the Year have afforded me. Uh, you know, um, it is a great privilege to be heard, uh, one that very, very yes. few get, especially survivors of child sexual abuse. Um, you know, and I, I often uh, sit back and I think, you know, why me, of all of the survivors of child sexual abuse, especially given the fact that, ooh, um, you know, like Rosie, I'm contacted daily by people who um, have similar experiences, um, you know, and, and, and especially given that there are um, so many unheard, underrepresented intersectional experiences, you know, our First Nations children, um, you know, children with disabilities, um, you know, and other marginalised children who face even greater barriers to justice and who, who you know, whose paths to justice are actually often made impossible by those systemic disadvantages who... Yeah. You're trying to silence me now. Indeed. <laughs> Do you want to try once more, Grace, and we'll swap the microphone if oh, it doesn't work? <laughs> Nah, she's still not working. I'm going to put a question to Rosie and come back to you. Rosie, in one... I, I know I'm silencing Grace Tame, but... Um, <laughs> show must go on and all that. I was given this microphone because the other one apparently didn't work. It's coming. It's coming. All right, coming. Rosie. But I love microphones. They are the most unreliable. It's funny... Oh, wait, wait. wait. <laughs> We've done it. Oh, here we go. Tag team. This one doesn't work. Yay! <laughs> You've got to put it, almost swallow it, Grace. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. I've got to do this for my fiancé backstage because we always do this, but that's what she said. <laughs> <sighs> sorry, I couldn't lower that. I just couldn't let that slide. Anyway, anyway. Um, but look, um, you know, I didn't... Much like Rosie, I didn't, I didn't ask to be named Australian of the Year. Um, as grateful as I am for this experience. Um, you know, we rewind, rewind the clock, um, because I've, got, I've just got to say, so this last week, um, a few things have happened, and a lot of people who don't work in the sector probably wouldn't be aware of this, and they wouldn't be aware of certain media coverage, but there's been a lot of criticism. And that's part and parcel of the landscape, especially the landscape of human rights activism and all its subsets, because it is an inherently fraught space. It's not like accounting, which is very dry, you know? No offence to any accountants. Um, it's a very noble profession, and all my, my hat's off to you. I can't do taxes, you know? You start speaking that kind of language, it sounds like, uh, you know, Mandarin to me. I, I just I totally don't understand it. Um, but, you know, people bring their heart and soul to this, mm. And there's a lot of trauma in it. Mm -hmm. And because of this, you know, um, when things go wrong or there's misperceptions, which are totally human, um, you know, there's a lot of emotion. And emotion can sometimes cloud our judgment. And we have to hold space for that, you know? And, and, and I've been on the receiving end of some very justified criticism. And I wear that, and I'm, I'm accountable for my mistakes, and that's one thing that I've tried to do as best as I can, especially as someone who, um, you know, I didn't go to university. I didn't do gender studies, um, you know, and I don't have as, as good a knowledge as I, as I could of feminist history and all the terminology, but I do my best um, to understand and to learn and to sit with diverse voices, um, you know, but to not ever speak for to always stand with and alongside and to share the platform. But, you know, there was a lot of criticism this week. Um, and, and one of the things on this steep learning curve, um, you know, that, that, that I've learned is that there's a very one-dimensional um, portrayal of a lot of us in the media. Um, you know, and, and actually, rewind the clock last year to the 25th of January. And... Uh, I was living in a housing commission area. I was an unemployed person when I was named Australian of the Year. I didn't ask for this, 
And Nina Fennell, the, the incredible freelance journalist who created the Let Her Speak campaign, who runs the Let Her Speak campaign, um, who gave myself and the 16 other brave survivors who lent their stories to the, to the campaign, um, she nominated me for Australian of the Year. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember getting the phone call um, and I had no idea about what the Australian of the Year Awards program was. Um, and you asked me what it was like to rock up to Canberra. Well, I remember just walking in, in the doors of the Crown Plaza and looking up at all these posters on the wall, and I went, oh, crap, Kathy Freeman was an Australian of the Year. <laughs> oh, jo John Farnham was an Australian of the Year. I'm waiting for my Rosie name. Rosie Batty was an Australian <laughs> no, of the Year. No, she did not notice my name. And then I might have pulled down Geoffrey Rush's poster off the wall. <laughs> Because winning a defamation case doesn't mean you're innocent. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> I'm really not in charge today. <laughs> Rosie, in, in one interview I found, you spoke to the media, and it was... I think it was just days after Luke had been murdered and you were surrounded by caring friends and you had the press knocking at your door and apparently your friends were trying to mm. game how to get rid of the media mm. and you said to them, well, nothing can hurt me now, mm. I can do it. Has the media attention helped you heal because it gave you a megaphone for reform or do you think it's done more personal harm than good? No, look, I think we can all speak to our own individual experiences. Grace is different, potentially, to mine. I will say um, that was the next, the next day. Um, I, you can only imagine, and, and I don't know whether you really can, that you're in some kind of shock and your body, you, you know, you can't absorb the reality of what's just happened. And all I, my memory of that time is my house was full of people from the local area from all my friends came together in in their shock to support each other in their grief and I'm kind of like in some kind of state of I don't know what and I just heard them talking about me now I don't like people making decisions on my behalf mm. stubborn like that mm. I noticed yeah <laughs> kind of that was all it was. There was nothing else behind it. I stubbornly went out and thought, don't, you know, you're not going to be making decisions on my behalf. There's no rational, they were just protecting me. So I went out. They didn't know it was me, the mum. And I really had a script in my head, I think, that was going to say, like the movies, could you please respect my family and leave? Mm. That was my script in my head. But they, you know, I started to talk. And ultimately, the, the thing that I did say was a family violence can happen to anyone. It doesn't matter how nice your house is, how intelligent you are, it can affect everybody. And that was a, something, and, and no one had, in that, you know, no one had had that happen before, and so the media were able to make headlines. Now, Prior to that, family violence didn't make headlines. It, was an, it, was a, it, was an, it didn't sell newspapers. It wasn't a big enough deal. So most people didn't know. One woman a week is being murdered. One in three women will experience physical violence over the age of 15. This is one in four children is impacted by family violence. This is, you know, those topics were not mainstream media. They were not making it. Um, so we didn't really... People didn't genuinely know how much of an epidemic family violence is across the world, not just even Australia, and into our remote communities. It's not, you know, the Aboriginal women um, experience 35 times the violence, and it is not their culture. Colonialisation has brought this. Now, like Grace, I didn't go to uni, I didn't study gender studies, I don't speak in a theoretical language. I have visited communities and I am in so been humbled by the way they've embraced me because they understand my pain and my loss. And I 
I, I relate to people because I use my language. Because there's a space for everyone's language. But average people who have not got qualifications in gender studies don't speak in theoretical language. So Grace and I, I don't, people relate to what we say and how we say it because we're just doing the best we can, speaking our truth, being authentic, being courageous to, to stand up and challenge. And you've got no frigging backing. Grace hasn't, I haven't. Mm. I'm living at home alone. And our, we haven't got a, a sea of advisors scripting what we're gonna say and how we're gonna say it. We, it comes out of our mouths, doesn't it, Grace? <laughs> Right. As, as I was going to say, um, you know, like, and I can't speak for Rosie, but, you know, like, my PR team is just me and Max <laughs> <laughs> sitting at home thinking of what funny tweets we can come up with. <laughs> um, you know, and, and that's, that's funny to an extent. Yeah. But, you know, when, when the mainstream media comes out fully swinging... No. You know, and a lot of people say, oh, just, just, just ignore it. <laughs> Twitter's not real, you know, and, but that's hard, mm. you know, sometimes. And, and um, you know, also to the point that you were making about language and, and those sorts of things, um, like, especially to, to go back to sort of, to use this, this last week as an example, and, and again, sorry if you don't sort of understand, um, um, to give a bit of loose context, there was a video that was released on Sunday night that was, was, was designed really just to make people question about um, where they put their vote in the next election, because um, really um, it, it wasn't to sort of co-opt Feminism, um, which was some of the criticisms that that was raised. Now, I um, I guess I, I I don't know about you, Rosie, but but by default I would identify as a feminist because I believe in equality. Um, but it was never something as a child that I, again, because of how I was raised. Both my parents grew up in the working classes. Um, it was never something I really thought twice about. But you know, we had a trans family member who was born in the 80s and um, we didn't know about intersectionality. We never heard that word. We never heard the, you know, these, these new terms like gender diversity and all of those things like that. But, you know, to suggest that we're not loving people is, that's hurtful, you know? And, and, and for example, like I spent a lot of time with my, my nan and pop who are salt of the earth people and they're feminists, but, you know, to say that they're not loving people or that they're not capable of participating in these discussions and good people because there's all this inaccessible language in this sector, I think we have to ask ourselves about what really is inclusive. You know? We, we, we're doing our best and we can hold space and we can hold each other accountable, but I believe that there's space to do all of those things at once. Um, you know, it's not so much about, I don't like this phrase, oh, progressives attack each other. It's not that. It's like I said before, this, this is an inherently fraught space because the people have a lot of trauma and emotion, but we can do all of those things at once. We can celebrate our successes, we can share the platform, we can respect each other and each other's trauma, and we can, you know, we, we can do all of those things at once. But if we're focusing too much on the negative, I don't think we're going to get very far, and I do worry about that divide and conquer. And there are certain people who are looking back and they're watching people tear each other down and go around in circles and they're just benefiting from it. And those are the perpetrators. Rosie, 
for quite a few years now, you've consistently and very generously shared your personal story in the pursuit of policy reform, in the pursuit of funding to end family violence. I, I think to the onlooker, there's this quiet confidence and knowledge and purpose that comes from you. But can you tell me about that experience of becoming someone who was lobbying for reform when, you know, you're not a lobbyist, you haven't been a public servant or a politician before, you were coming in cold with your ideas. What was that like? Oh, look, I guess it's, you know, I look back. I mean, this is eight years since I lost Luke. And um, it is an overwhelming journey and one where you, you know, you recognise you are being um, politically exploited. You are realising that... But, you, you know, you make it work for you as well. And, and, and I have to say, I had a sense of purpose and meaning that gave me a reason to get up every day. And I was Luke. So, ultimately, it was my drive. It was my reason to keep living. So I would never change that. Never. But what it did is isolated me, it disconnected me. I couldn't understand why people didn't keep in touch with me anymore. Mm. And I began to realise I can't avoid the deep grieving. I was pouring myself into this work to distract myself from further grieving which has taken me years. And I can tell you, during the first year of COVID lockdown, mm. when other people were working out and feeling dissatisfied or frustrated or pushing back on government restrictions, I was choosing, finally, which urn to put Luke's ashes in. Because it's the first time I'd had time to do that. Mm. And it was uncomfortable and it was painful. But you can't, you have to eventually sit with pain. And we do avoid it. We drink, we smoke, we take drugs, we do anything to avoid pain. And ultimately, what it allowed me to do was sit with my pain, and I am now better for it. And so, what I would say is, it was my lifeline. Mm. I have. You know, I have not always believed in myself. Even when we finish today, I'll be chatting to Grace saying, was that okay? Was that okay? Because ultimately, I'm more Same. willing to go believe those other people that say, you know what, she doesn't know what she's talking about. I don't know. Um, and so I battle with that. I have perhaps all my life not been good enough. Um, so it's a life, life of learning, life of trying to not just be thankful for what you have, but celebrate everything that you have. And I have met some amazing people. I mean, I'm here, I'm in the Opera House. I'm sorry, Grace, I've been here about four times. <laughs> I've never been here before. <laughs> and you've got to pinch yourself and say, mm. Clementine Ford, Anne Summers, um, Jamila, you know, there's amazing people who are doing amazing work that you have met, rubbed shoulders with, listened to. And every time I listen to somebody, I learn heaps. I can't believe how absolutely eloquent you are, Grace. I swear a lot, though. <laughs> so do Sorry, I. Man. So do I. But... I'm learning all the time, and the opportunities I get, I know many other family violence advocates who have got real stories that they want to have heard will never get the opportunities because they didn't experience a hideous loss like I did that got me to being Australian of the Year. So I keep doing what I can. I have to look at the ways I do it. I actually speak a lot more now about grief, mental health, courage, all those things, because I can talk about them because I'm not in it anymore. Mm. I'm not 
but when I was Australian of the Year, I didn't know which which bit was PTSD from anxiety to grief to... I had the whole back going on. Mm. And I didn't even see, there was a lot of people worried about me. All I see is the photos of how fat I got. <laughs> and, but that's a reflection again. And I don't mean to say that in a, in a negative way because I know that, it, but you know, I was not healthy. I can see that. And now it's been a journey of, um, of, of who am I? I'm not the mum. Who are my friends? Who are those people who've gone the distance? And everyone who's experienced a trauma, whether it's through chronic illness, mm. whether it's through loss, a lot of people don't go the distance. And others step up and become firm friends. They never expected. Mm. And that's life. And I've got two friends here today called Rosemary and Emily. And Rosemary was in my, the night of Luke's funeral holding my hand. Weren't you, Rosemary? And sometimes, sometimes I'm emotional and sometimes I'm not. And it's okay, because I'm being real. Yeah. And if it makes people uncomfortable to sit with real feelings, well, tough shit. <laughs> I want to pick up on what some of Rosie's just said, Grace, and that is that just because you've shared what's happened to you today, or even 100 days, doesn't mean you feel like doing it the next day, right? Mm. And... I recognise the irony of then asking you about it, but how, do you, how have you managed the, the right that the media, that politicians, even community members like us sometimes feel they have to ask you questions on a day when you might be like, oh, I've said that, I don't want to do it today. Uh, sometimes I don't, to be honest with you. Um... Because, and so I've been trying to have this discussion all year um, about how intentionally or otherwise um, the agents of the systems and institutions designed to protect us, whether that be the police or the courts or the media, often um, recreate uh, or mimic the behaviour patterns of predators, wherein... <laughs> you know, wherein they uh, are the ones holding all of the, the, the power, you know. And, um, for example... Um, when I made my statement to police, um, you know, and, and, and part of this is a failing of our education system and why I'm so focused on prevention. Um, you know, it's a complex subject like grooming, which are mirrors coercive control, I suppose, in the domestic violence basis. You know, we, um, it's a very complex subject. I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent, but I promise you I will go back. Um, but, you know, when, we, when we're, uh, say, um, you know, stabbed, we have the um, language to explain what happened to us. Um, and then also um, the uh, language and the, the tools to seek appropriate help afterwards. But children, by virtue of their age, don't have the mental framework to actually understand all the complex layers of psychological manipulation. So also, even though I actually decided to report to police, so I knew on some level that what had happened to me was categorically wrong. I didn't know how wrong, and I couldn't actually compartmentalise all those layers. I didn't know about isolation. I didn't know about the 
the careful eroding of the boundaries. Um, you know, I didn't know about the maintaining control. I couldn't, I didn't have the language to, to explain all of these different things. And so I was still very confused and I was still very worried about getting into trouble um, because I did know that I participated in the lying and the covering up and this aspect of conspiracy. So I did feel very much like it was my fault. Um, and the police officer, and um, actually the way that the, the statement, um, the, the circumstances in which the statement was made did very much reinforce that dynamic. I made the statement to a man who was twice my size, very much like the pedophile who was six foot two and 58 years old when I was 15. Um, and most of it occurred in a small room when I was on, the back, on my back on the floor. And here I am, and on a Saturday night, in this tiny little shoebox of a room, my parents are in the other room, I didn't have a support person, and there's this man asking me questions. And every time I described one of the incidents of rape, he stopped me and he said, and by rape, do you mean he put his penis into your vagina? and I had to stop and I had to qualify every incident of rape and that trips you up and it makes you think and it makes you go into the self-doubt and the guilt and the shame and that's another example of it. And then how about we go into the media? Last year, every time you're sort of briefed on where the topic will go, where the conversation will go, and of course, people like David Koch love to throw you under the bus because, hey, how fun is it to talk about politics randomly on morning TV for a bit of ratings in the morning, you know? Um, and then there's all of these other examples, or the courts. Um, putting children um, on the stand to cross-examine them. Um, children who don't understand, again, these complex subjects. That's another example. Um, or how about the, the law that in Tasmania, the Let Her Speak campaign had to campaign to change that archaic law. Or all these other examples of, of gaslighting. The Grace Tame Foundation, um, which we set up to pursue both um, structural change and cultural change, we've currently just launched a campaign which is called Stop Gaslighting Survivors because currently, in six jurisdictions still, the crime of persistent child sexual abuse is still called maintaining a sexual relationship with a child. Mm. And because my perpetrator, who <laughs> actually abused several girls before me, and I talked about this at the National Press Club, but I, I don't expect that people watch all of the speeches that I make, but... but <laughs> 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 But I, 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 do, I do try to, to make this point quite a lot. Um, he was, not only was he found with 28 multimedia files of child abuse material, including nine files of videos of adults raping children, he was also found with a trophy file of all of the girls that he collected from 1992 until 2011. And guess what? All of the girls had something in common. They were like me. I came from a broken home. My parents were separated when I was one. Um, and that's one of the things. They look for particularly vulnerable children who are easy targets, who are already isolated or in need of, 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 of something um, and some more emotional support. They were all from rural families or broken homes. Um, you know, and he kept them on his computer, kept all these girls, you know? But he was convicted, not of persistent child sexual abuse, he was convicted of maintaining a sexual relationship. And the media was then able, they had actually official license to romanticise abuse. And this is how our victim blaming culture is not just a culture, it's actually codified into our society, it's actually entrenched in our systems, they were able to romanticise abuse, and the first headline that came out that reported on my case, and I read this when I was 16, was teacher admits to affair with student. Mm. So there you go. And again, I've gone off on a massive tangent. <laughs> but I come back, and you were talking about the media and their right. <laughs> And how do I know and how do I manage? And the answer is sometimes I don't. And sometimes, you know, and if it weren't for Max, 
Heary, my now fiance, I probably wouldn't be alive. And you know what? I'm going to be honest about something. And the media will probably grab hold of this and they might write something really trashy about it. And you know what? I will wear it because I want a lot of crap this year and I own it. And I like to be a few steps ahead and maybe specifically eight years ahead of the Daily Mail. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I was actually in the ER the other day because I felt I, I actually lost control and I, I was really scared and I called up I called up the clinic and I just said I just can't I can't I've stepped too deep into the shame spiral and I'm thinking about killing myself and that's real that's the toll it takes that's the price of shame and so that's why I wrote that open letter you know, I've got a sense of humour, and I can, I can say, you know, take me to the April Sun in Cuba, baby, <laughs> and have a laugh. But the media has a lot to answer for. In where it directs its shame, there is a disproportionate amount of shame that is still pointed towards people who do not understand yet what has happened to them. And that shame needs to be pointed squarely, completely, not at these people who are trying to figure out what the fuck happened to them. It needs to be pointed at the perpetrators of domestic violence, of sexual assault and child sexual abuse. That is where it needs to be pointed. Can one of the lovely people on the side of stage grab Grace some more water, please? Rosie. And me. And, and Rosie, sorry, I didn't see you were empty. Um, sorry. There's one book that's been very impactful in the trauma space called The Body Keeps the Score, and the proposition is a simple one, that trauma literally changes both the body and the brain. Yeah. If and only if you're comfortable, how do you think your body is keeping score? I think <clears throat> um, my body is better now than it was five years ago. I think my brain, it's really tough because I, <clears throat> I was at a music festival recently. Oh, it's too long a story to go into because I'll be here for the rest of the session. But I have to say, <laughs> an incident happened. We were all in a music festival. <clears throat> and this nice man and his mother were sat beside, and they were nothing to do with me. They just happened to be sat. And somebody from behind lobbed something and hit the guy in the head. He tossed it back, and I leapt up. I leapt up. And my intent was to say to these people behind, we're having a festival, it's a lovely day, have a good time. Mm. Now, two men came up to me and were talking at me. And all I could say was, you're not letting me speak. Mm. You are not letting me speak. And that's all I kept saying is, you're not letting me speak because they never let me speak. And then... Their girlfriends came in, right in my face. And I said, you are not letting me speak. And then a very, very aggressive man started swearing at me and coming up. And I said, how dare you speak to me like that? A nice man comes in and, funnily enough, they listened to him. Mm. He wouldn't let me speak. <laughs> friend who was very concerned for me she was trying to tell me you know shut me up I said shut up nobody's letting me speak no one let me speak I couldn't let go of that so the, <laughs> what I will say is no one understands the fight and flight mm. 
I don't know why I involved myself with that. But I was there, quicker than my brain or anything could work. It was there. It's such a fast response that you can't control. And then the fight, and then the flight, where I just wanted to leave. And then the freeze, which is the self-loathing, the remorse, the horrible space you find yourself in. I did nothing wrong, but every single one of those people wouldn't let me speak and I couldn't let go of that. I couldn't let go of it. So that fight mechanism is, is something that it alienates, you know, people don't, you know, if they don't understand, they don't understand why you've responded in such a way. And it's a battle because your neural pathways, I know, it happens less to me. I have more control. I have more balance. I'm very mindful of having better balance in my life. My anxiety can just get too much, but I can see it coming now. I can see, feel it creeping in. When I was Australian of the Year, I was in a constant state of hypervigilance for three years. During being Australian of the Year, I spoke at 250 events. I was manic. I was not an easy person to be around. My friends needed a bloody medal to be putting up with me. <laughs> Fortunately, you know, the things that did happen didn't make front headlines. Because, you know, it's, trauma is a beast. It's really hard for people to understand, even my family. Because the incident may not be nothing about them. But unless you've got special qualities or good emotional intelligence, it is, they make it about them. And they may stop speaking to you. They may break their friendship with you. And you might say, well, what kind of a friendship was it anyway? But you sit with that. You sit and you notice that people are no longer around. And you just want them to forgive you or hold that space for you or allow you to just let your pain out. It's a journey for everybody that cares about you. And it's a journey that doesn't end, really, because in care... We're always, you know, you are you. Mm. You are the experiences that have made you you, the vulnerable parts of you, the strong parts of you, the brave and courageous parts of you. It's all you. And only can be is you. So I think that um, I would say I, um, I never thought I would arrive at where I am now. And I will say, it was three years after Luke died, I just wanted it to end. I wanted it to end. I didn't think of taking my life. I just wanted it to go. But I do remember being in Sydney and I was racing from one thing to the other thing. And it was three years after Luke had died. And I pushed open my taxi door and a bus came past and took it off its hinges. And in that moment, I sat there and thought, am I relieved I'm alive or am I disappointed I'm still here? And I sat there and I realized I want to live. I have to live. And that bastard that took Luke cannot ruin my life. So you live with grief. You, the pain is there, but it comes and it goes. Mm. And it's more manageable. And there are moments of sadness, but there is joy. There is pleasure. There are great things. There are things to look forward to. And I plan them and I make them happen. And I have three wonderful dogs that are my best friends. <laughs> And as I've shared with Grace, I walk in a beautiful, beautiful place and that's where my healing and that's where my space is. 
it's that whole find your space. You're just laughing. <laughs> I'm laughing because she's also shared with me that she's got, it's donkeys, isn't it? Yes. She's got donkeys. Yeah, Rosie's got a donkey. Two. <laughs> Two. <laughs> whose shit she has to clean up that keeps, <laughs> that keeps her really grounded and gives her the space. Part of my healing is shoveling shit. Rosie, I want to stick with you just for a moment. When you saw Grace named Australian of the Year, mm. were you worried? For oh, her? yeah. I thought she has no idea what's ahead of her. <laughs> but I knew what an amazing opportunity. But honestly, how could you possibly know what's ahead of you? You just have no idea. And I think, surely they had some idea when it happened to me. They could give me a bit of warning about what to expect. And I just thought, I just hope that they have been able to give Grace an indication of, of what is likely to be ahead. I saw this beautiful young woman make an incredible speech mm. and I thought the media are gonna love her. Every person who has a personal story has been validated by this inspiring, amazing person being made Australian of the Year and they will all reach out they will identify, they will, they, they will want to connect. Every community group from Rotary to whoever will want her to speak at every event possible. It will be overwhelming, but it's a life-changing and amazing experience to have. So I did feel great concern because you just think, I'd just like to give you a bit of a heads up yeah. of what it's like. But it's, it's well, how can you warn somebody? It's, about, it's like almost having a parent, being a parent, where you go, they will tread their own path. They will make their own mistakes. They will make it their, their own. And I'm so glad that you have grace. Because if I had been able to give advice, you know, you, you end up doing what you do anyway because it's got to be authentically the journey you carve for yourself. Yeah, and, and Rosie, you made, you made my job quite a lot easier. Thank you. Um, we owe a lot to you. Thank you. You know, we, we both stand on the shoulders of giants. Yes. Um, yes. You know, so much work has been done in, in this sector by so many incredible yeah. activists act, um, and advocates and, um, you know, survivors of, of domestic violence, sexual assault, academics, yeah. sector experts who pour their heart and soul into this every single day, you know, and as I've said, who don't get the opportunities to be heard, um, you know, whether it's often or if at all, um, you know, who labour away um, and... And it's not safe to spit for them to speak out. Yeah, often it's not safe. Government for funding. Yeah, or, or, you know, who are clawing for this, the crumbs of government funding that are often offer, offered to them. And it's, mm. it does, it's, it's, it's so hard, you know, and, and, I, and I, feel, um, I feel awful, um, you know, and I, I try to do as best I can to support as much as I can with the opportunities that I get, um, you know, to, to spread... Um, you know, what I do, um, what I do get. Um, but yes, you know, we, we've got to be incredibly grateful because it's one thing to have uh, a message, but it's another, it's another for it to be received and supported. Um, activists and advocates are only as powerful as their supporters. So I am grateful every day that, that, they, that a lot of the Australian public, um, and thank you for thank you for fielding um, Mark Latham for me, Rosie, um, during your time. <laughs> um, you know he's been he's been significantly defanged um, <laughs> since <laughs> um, since 2015, but uh, you know um, far out. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's been it's been incredible um, to be to you know to bear witness to that um, and to. 
uh, as, as difficult as it, as it is to, to go through all of that, that what we've talked about, um, ultimately, um, it, is, it is symbolic of huge progress and, and hope, you know, like it's in my very recent memory. Um, you know, and Dylan Alcott talked about this as a, as a disability activist um, and advocate. Um, you know, he hated himself for who he was. Mm. I, I hated myself for being a child sexual abuse survivor. I hated myself. I remember that. Um, you know, I moved to another country because I didn't want to be here. Um, I wanted anonymity. And um, it's still, to me, very abstract um, to be celebrated for... Mm. Yeah. Um, this, to stand on a platform and be proud to be a child sexual abuse survivor. A lot of people still, as I said, cannot do that. They cannot mm -hmm. identify and um, they risk further punishment yeah. for identifying as a child sexual abuse survivor for various reasons. I cannot speak to those experiences and that's not what I wish to do. Um, and we have to make space and try to platform those people um, who are underrepresented and unheard. Um, but we've come a long way and have to acknowledge that. Um, you know, I couldn't be prouder to be the first ever Australian of the year to be named yeah. as a child sexual abuse survivor. And to Rosie, you know, for her story, that is a huge symbol of progress, to actually be proud of that. As tragic as it is that those are our stories that got us to that point, that we can be recognised for those things is also a great symbol of hope that we can own those and break down that stereotype of what it means to be a survivor of those things, mm. you know? That, I, you know, we don't have to be perfect victims. You know, I speak for myself. Rosie and I are quite different. We've spoken about these things in the media before. You know, I'm a little bit rougher around the edges. I, just, I think it's safe to say that, um, <laughs> you know? I've got a bit of a wicked sense of humour. It gets me into trouble sometimes. But, you know, that's okay. You know? You don't have to be a timid, um, you know, this textbook sort of idea. And that's all right, you know? You can be, you can be strong and you can be vulnerable at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's cool. Yeah. I think also we, we're not, we don't seek to be pitied. We don't seek to be limited by our experience. And what's wonderful for me now is rather than people avert their glaze and feel sorry for me because of what's happened to me, they're really delighted to see me and meet me. And they... You know, and it's so I'm not limited. I'm not defined by. I have myself that I also bring. And, and so I think, as, as Grace says, you, you know, you want to be that inspiration for people who are doing it tough or have had a really difficult journey. And they look at you and say, if Rosie can do it, if Grace can do it, I can do it too. And I don't always understand that I am that inspiration for people, but I hear that often. And I think, wow, you know, we all need to seek inspiration from where we can find it. And if I happen to be able to be that for some people, that's fabulous, because other people are that for me. I look at other people, I can't think now at the moment, who... <laughs> and, you know, so I, I do. And we, we, we need to see examples of not just survival. I don't like the word thrive either, but actually living fully, despite, because we all have our challenges. And we do need to see examples of people that we think, oh, if that happened to me, I'd just be a mess. I'd never get up again. And in fact, that was some of the criticism about me. 
the distrust to see a mother who'd had her son murdered, being able to stand, speak to the media, become Australian of the Year, go out there and campaign. And there's some very ugly, from women as well, victim blaming, who distrust. Oh, look at her, she's wanting to be in the media again. I was in the media as every opportunity to get the message about family violence across. It was never about my ego. So, you know, we do need to see examples of people because there are many brave people that transcend tragedy and some aren't able but a whole stack of people are very inspiring and do amazing things. Friends, please put your hands together for Rosie Batty and for Grace Payne. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you both for sharing so candidly. Uh, as we said earlier, just because you have in the past didn't mean you had to today. We greatly appreciate it. I think everyone has learned a lot and is going home with a big smile on their face. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Talk and others at All About Women 2022 on stream. The new streaming service from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching. Follow the Sydney Opera House on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.